Welcome to the Story Forward Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Larry Rosen. You're used to my voice by now if you listen to this podcast. Along with me, Christian Wynn, co-founder and director of StoryFort. And where are we right now? We're live from StoryFort. Someone will be live from StoryFort. It's not us. We're actually at different points of the West Coast, right? We are. are. I am in Boise. San Francisco. Boise's not yet the uh, West Coast, I guess. Yeah, I always forget that. You know, because, and here's a little tip for those of you who, like me, were unwise to the ways of Boise, Idaho, before you became involved in it. It's not on the West Coast. It's not close to Seattle. It's not pronounced Boise. That's it. That is all. That's what I've learned. Three point lesson. Um, But we are, yeah, going to bring you some cool stuff today that Larry can get into in a second here. But uh, Mm -hmm. live from from StoryFort 2022, we record audio and sometimes video nearly every event um, at Storyport each year so we can we can repurpose or guess actually purpose the uh, the content Larry likes that word a lot I know but this oh is boy, do I ever content. I'm a content creator <laughs> yeah so live from Storyport in the at the Cherie Buckner Webb Park um, it's just this really cool pocket park right downtown um, at 11th and Bannock if you're in Boise Idaho it's this like great little city park with this really cool giant pink tree sculpture and a new office building with a fine deli downstairs and a coffee shop right there and it's walking distance from everything story Ford and tree Ford. we have our friend who came out from portland um he he submitted his work which you can do too when it's open open submissions usually start in about july and run through early fall each year um if you're a writer or a storyteller so i hadn't met travis but uh before he came to story Ford, we talked on the phone i think we zoomed with him a couple times we did an event together um at that big theater that scared me but um, egyptian yeah i will tell you a couple of things about travis abels uh first of all uh, he looks like dak shepherd second of all he's a very zen type of character he's you know he's a very low-key relaxed kind of guy I, I bet he would say no that he's not a relaxed kind of guy because he's also worked super hard but he kind of gives off an air of, of, of calmness. And he's also a storyteller, and he came into this a little bit late in life. His, his job, the way he makes his money, he is as a, a creator of movie trailers. And he's been doing that for a long time. And actually now, when we were working on our thing, he was sort of overseeing a group of editors making movie trailers. And it's like a round-the-clock sort of sort of job. Huh. But a few years ago, he decided he wanted to start doing spoken word and, and writing and telling stories. Actually, I shouldn't say a few years ago. He's always wanted to do it. A few years ago, he found the time to start really diving into it. And he's done a, a moth event in Portland. I can't believe I talked around this long without mentioning the Curious Ear. He creates the soundscapes that we've been playing throughout this um, season. But he wanted to do uh, an event that was pure storytelling. And this is a recording of that, of one of the stories he told in that event. And it's a long story and it's a well-structured story. And I will tell you right now, he wrote it within 48 hours of telling it. It's a story about uh, when he was much younger, going to New Orleans, kind of on a whim. It's basically the story of what made him decide that he wanted to write and tell stories. So that's a lot about Travis. So settle back in and listen up. with StoryFort, and I am so excited to introduce this next artist. All the way from Portland, Oregon, and beyond, (laughs) we have Travis Abels. He is a storyteller, movie trailer editor, and top-notch parallel parker, as one must be in Portland. 
Oregon, just in case you were thinking Maine. His work has won boisterous applause from his mother, my mother, and he's also won a few Clio Awards and Moth Story Slams. He's thrilled to be part of this year's Tree Fort, Music Fest, and promises a rousing good time. Travis Abels, take it away. Thank you. Wow, thanks, y'all. Good to see you. I sure do appreciate you being here. Um, I think I'll just get right into it, right? Um, I've never tried to tell this story before because it terrifies me, <laughs> frankly. And uh, but I feel like this is a good, you, 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 we're all connected now. We've been playing games. I feel like you know, we could do this. We could do this together. So I'm just going to try. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. I brought some notes. If I, if I lose my place, please uh, have patience with me while I remember. Um, this is a story from uh, about 20 years ago, 17 years ago, something like that. Virgin hitchhikers don't catch many rides. We might have the innocence to display and communicate to a soccer mom driving by at 70 miles an hour that she can safely let her foot off of that gas pedal and help out this soul in need. But in that charged moment when our eyes connect, the hitchhiker gets all excited. Oh, this is it. This is it. Oh, my gosh. This is going to be my first ride ever. I can't believe it. And their face starts doing all of this. And that minivan is... No one wants to be someone's first time. It's too much pressure. And that's exactly what I am. Walking backwards along the interstate a few miles south of Muncie, Indiana, with my arm outstretched and my thumb pointed to the sky, just collecting mouthful after mouthful of dust as cars fly by. It was the last summer before my last year of college, and I desperately needed to figure out what my path was. I'd always dreamed of growing up to be someone like Leonardo da Vinci, you know, just spending my days drawing eddies of water and, and, and a curl in a strand of hair and, and seeing the common language between those two things and, and leaves caught in a cyclone of air. And with these synchronicities, I, I'd work them into something that I was making, you know, all in the name of making something honest and real. But my art classes weren't about making art for art's sake, and my writing courses were more about distinguishing what your target audience was and, and finding the little niche that you would tailor everything you did to hit that little point of profitability. And the more I got down the road to this start of a career, the more disillusioned I was with everything. And I only had one year left to figure out what I was going to do with my life. <sighs> I journaled that out one afternoon, and through the cafe window, I see this gentleman uh, digging through the trash. And he pushes aside some coffee grounds, and he finds this dinner roll. And he, he throws his hands up in celebration and does a little dance, and he bites into this thing, closing his eyes and just letting every piece of the bread touch the corners of his mouth, savoring it like a fine wine. And I marvel at the contrast between this gentleman in delight and everyone else in the cafe with me who's just looking miserable, eating these prepared meals not from the trash, uh, just spooning it in without even looking at it. And it, it really takes me. And so I, I go outside and I, I say hello. And he's still in the trash and he looks up and he says, sometimes you got to shop till you drop. Am I right? He really impressed me. And this was Jerry. And... Over the next few days, he introduced me to 
living life off the grid, off the track that us normies, as he called us, were so keen on attaching our trains to. And on this track, we could feel safe, you know, not having to worry about the dangers that loomed outside of our status quo. But, he asked, if we weren't really testing ourselves and stepping outside of our known worlds into the beyond, were we ever really figuring out who we were? I felt like I was standing at a fork in the road, and here's Jerry offering me a spoon. In this moment, I realized I need to spend the rest of my summer trying to see if I could live off the grid. And maybe in doing so, I'd figure out what life was calling me to do. But I couldn't do it here in Muncie, Indiana, because I lived here, and I knew that it'd be too easy just to go home to my bed and my resources, like my, my cell phone and my credit cards. I knew to really do it true, I needed to leave all of those comforts behind. And I, I'd been reading a lot of On the Road at the time, I, religiously. I'd read it seven times, falling in love with Jack Kerouac and all that hitchhiking. So I realized, okay, I, I, that's how I got to do it. And... I closed my eyes to think of where I would go, and the first thing that came to mind is New Orleans. And I know nothing about New Orleans other than it's south, somewhere near the ocean, and it sounds magical. So I packed a bag with a pocket knife and three notebooks and 12 peanut butter sandwiches. And two days later, my skin is peeling off from sunburn. I've walked about 25 miles, and I've still yet to catch my first ride. Until I get picked up by a police officer. And he informs me it's actually illegal to hitchhike, turns out. It's dangerous out here. Do you ever watch the news? What are you doing? Ah, but if you're going to hitchhike, you might as well learn what the heck to do. First off, no one picks people up from the interstate going 70 miles an hour. That's ridiculous. You should be on country roads where people can actually slow down in order to pick you up. And ultimately, you should be looking for truck stops where you might catch a long-haul driver who can take you all the way there in one swoop. He looked over at me with fern brows and said, I hope it goes without being said that I didn't tell you any of this. Yes, sir. Of course, sir. And the next day, along a country road, I caught my first ride. Now, to describe this vehicle that picked me up, go ahead and close your eyes and just imagine what kind of vehicle would be solely designed for kidnapping. Does it look a little bit like a rusted out gray three-panel van with no windows? Bling, 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 you got it. That's what it was. And inside are two gentlemen, one that's the size of a tree and one that's the size of a straw and they're not smiling at all but that door opens up and a good part of me said you know probably don't don't get in that van don't get in the van but another part of me was like you're hungry you're almost out of peanut butter <laughs> and that's part of the deal if you're gonna hitchhike you got to get into cars that you don't know that's like the number one thing you do so I got in and it was fine. For the first hour, we're driving south, and I could tell we're going south because through the windshield, the sun is setting off to the right. And I, I, I tried to talk with them because I thought that was, you know, part of the fare. Uh, but they don't really talk back much. And eventually, they stop responding to me altogether. And I chalk it up to, well, you know, it's 
it's uh, it's noisy. There's a lot of stuff rattling around this van. Maybe they just can't hear me, you know. But and then there's a pause from all the rattling, and I distinctly hear one of them say, "Yeah, he's gonna love that, huh?" Uh, uh, love, love, what? What, what am I? <laughs> what am I gonna love? And they don't respond. It's just silent, and they don't even look back at me. They just exchange a little glance from the side with a smile as if they're harboring some dark secret and I am now fully preparing for something awful to happen. So I covertly dig into my bag and grab this little pocket knife and I open it up and I clutch it and I steal myself for the moment when the van stops and one of them lunges at me. Do I have the grit to stick them with the pointy end and run? And the van stops and it's silent, and no one lunges, and it's quiet, and like a mannequin, I slowly lift my hand to that door, and I rip it open, and I bolt. And I get about 100 yards away before I realize no one's chasing me, and I stop and I turn around, just in time to see the, the door of that van close and peel away. And the sun is setting, and I'm surrounded by corn with nothing but horizon on either side. Whew. And the next day when I finally made it to that truck stop, I was a few pounds lighter, having gained a healthy skepticism of three-door panel vans. And I meet an angel there, disguised as a 67-year-old grandmother named Sandy in overalls with a penchant for sunflower seeds. And she tells me she's on her way to Baton Rouge and she can drop me off at New Orleans. So that night, I fall asleep on the window of their passenger side, and I dream of New Orleans. I see the, the, the ocean there, and, and, the, and the, the, the waves just lapping at my toes, and, and out beyond the ocean and the clouds, I could almost see my life's purpose. It's, it's just beyond the thing. I could, almost, I could almost see it. And then I wake up, and on the radio is Sweet Caroline. And out the window, the first thing I see is a Greyhound station saying, Welcome to New Orleans. <gasps> I made it. What? What? We're here? Huh? And I, I hug Sandy goodbye, and I hop out like a toddler, just amazed by everything. There's trolleys just zipping by like straight out of a romance novel. And, and, and people are smiling, and there's all these gorgeous bungalows with intricate balconies and, and plants just dangling down the sides. And, and oh, here's a lady with, with a basket of fruit on her head. What? I'm just floored by everything. And by the time that the 12th trolley zings by, I just hop on the back like I'd seen in the movies. And the trolley driver says, hey, there, friend, good to see you. And I said, hey, it's good to be seen. And we start talking, and he eventually asked me where I'm staying. I said, I'm staying right here. Oh, right here in the French Quarter? Yeah, you know, right, right here. I'm standing right here next to you. I don't really have a place I'm staying beyond that. And his face changes to one of concern. He says, man, you can't be out here on the streets. They'll eat you up. Eat me up. Who's going who's gonna to eat me up? You name it. There's more than gators out here. This is a city. With, this city is, has one of the highest crime rates in the country right now. And beyond that, if, if it's illegal to be homeless out here, if you, if you sleep on the streets, the cop will, will, will scoop you up and take you to Crossbars Motel. 
and ice enters my chest with the new reality of this situation that I'm in. And I didn't know what Crossbars Motel was, but I could venture a guess, and I wasn't keen on finding out what happened there. And then he called out, Canal Street in Burgundy, over the PA, and the trolley squealed to a stop, and he leans in, and he says, listen, six blocks that way is Covenant House. It's a shelter, and if you get there by 5.30, you might be able to find a spot. And I got there at 5.20, and they had a couple beds left, and one for me, provided I was willing to have my bag search for, for drugs and go to a church service that evening. And a wave of relief washed over me. They gave me a little a little piece of paper with a number two on it indicating the, the cot I would be in. And then one more person came behind me and the doors closed and that feeling of relief was replaced with guilt because me getting a bed that night meant that someone else might not get one. Will they also get picked up or something worse? And I tried to squish that feeling away and through the fire and brimstone sermon that night. And I'm laying there on the cot, just trying to go back to sleep. And I, it's still just weighing heavy on my chest. But beyond that, I realized just how hard it is to fall asleep in a room of 160 men, double stacked in bunks with varying degrees of mental health. It's like, I, I'm a light sleeper, you know? And I've always chalked that up to be because, I, you know, maybe my ancestral instincts are still going inside of me. And what that boils down to is whenever there's a sound at night, my body says, wake up, something is trying to kill you. And tonight I'm lying here and just about every 30 seconds there's a, yeah! Or uh, a, a violent cough that ricochets through the room or someone falling out of their bunk. And I, I, as I'm just about to drift off and dance with the stars, some new noise pierces me awake. And finally, at around 4 a.m., I give up. And I wander down the hall and find a little closet and click on the light from this hanging from a string, and I start to write. And I try to conjure Jack Kerouac. You know, I just open, open the portals of my mind and let it flow out. But all that comes out is, is fear. And, and worry, like, am I really honoring my heroes here? Or am I, just, am I just taking up space? Am I just needlessly putting myself in danger and flaunting my privilege? And I start to worry, if, am, I, am I here to really find my, my purpose in life? Or am I just going to push fate too far and wind up floating under the dock somewhere, like just being nibbled away by barnacles? And I realized this is ridiculous. I, I just need to go home. I need, I need to go home. That's what I'll do. And, and there's that Greyhound station I saw on the way in, and I'll just go there because I'm a little freaked out by the hitchhiking prospects. And then I realized I didn't bring a credit card. <laughs> and I cursed myself. Ah! But I'll just say, yeah, I got to figure it out. I'm going to figure it out in the morning. And then a generator kicks on, and about a... 100 fluorescent lights flicker to life across the building, and it's 5 a.m., time to get up. And at 5.20, I'm, I'm in the mess hall sitting at a long table, eating grits across from this man who looks like he's been carved out of wood. And next to him is a gentleman who just falls out of the bench onto the floor, somehow still asleep, and no one does anything except for the wooden man across from me who just loops his arm around that man's grits and starts spooning it in like... We've just been past the butter. And by 5.30, we're back on the street. 
and the sun is waking up through a periwinkle sky, and I am walking towards that greyhound, figuring out what I'm going to do, and I wind up in the stream of business-looking folks, all covered in pinstripes and, and sharp lipstick, and like ants on a pheromone trail, no one looks up. They're all just on their path. And no one notices like who's around them or, or the light just gently spilling through the trees of this, this oak tree right here. And I see a future version of myself falling alongside of them, going into this tall, shiny building and sharpening my pencil diligently, getting ready for the day. And then I think, well, wait, I, I'm right here, right now. I don't, have to go, I don't have to go inside, so I don't. I just keep walking. And once all the worker bees have found their hives, what's left on the stairs of these tall buildings are the vagabonds, the drifters that I met last night. And, and over here is Chris, uh, fingering through the cigarettes of an ashtray, rescuing the ones that still have a few drags left. And he takes me on a tour through the financial district and shows me all the, the best spots to find him. And, and around, around 6 o'clock, I see Theo, this man who's talking with the pigeons. And y'all, he's not talking like to the pigeons. He's talking with them, like actively listening and asking follow-up questions. And he's conducting the most brilliant interview I've ever seen. And I'm just so stoked to be here. And by about 6.30, I've forgotten all about that Greyhound station. And that's around the time I meet Bear. Bear is this lumberjack-looking dude in his 30s who has short-cropped hair, framing a face full of smiles, and he's blocking the sun, looking down at me, and he says, hey there, friend, bum a smoke? I said, ah, I don't, I don't have any, but I know of a good place to find one. So I take him back to the, Scots, the spots that Chris had showed me, and we find a couple, and we stretch out on the, on the steps of this big building, like, two house cats finding the ray of sunlight. And he looks over and says, well, hot damn, I declare, this is the best backy I have yet encountered. And I said, indubitably, indubitably, my fine friend, I'd say it's best backy I've seen west of the Milky Way. And just like that, Bear and I become inseparable. It's like when you meet someone and you go to shake their hand and it just instantly turns into one of those like five-part sequences. Except if that's just kept going into this wild, insane, secret handshake that you somehow both just cosmically know, you know? And it's like I, I'm the abbot to his Costello. And, and he's the older brother that I've always wanted. And we just zig and zag together through the town and just holding our bellies from laughing that day until eventually I ask him where he's staying. And he outstretches his arms and says, everywhere. That was cool. And uh, he asked me where I'm from. And I said, yeah, right here. And he said, right here, born and raised? I was like, yeah, you know, cl close enough. And he smiles and lets the silence just sit there before he finally says, yeah, I've met a few folks like you with no past, just living right here in the here and now. I could dig it. How about I just call you Tex? So from that point on, he never asked me another question about my life prior to that moment. And that was fine by me because this dude had stories for the both of us. He told me all about Michigan and hopping trains and his sweetheart back in Arizona. And someday, someday I'm going to find her. When the stars are right and the moon makes sense, I'm going to find her. And I wonder why I didn't just go there now, but I didn't ask. Instead, I, I just asked him where he was staying. And again, he said, I'm, I'm staying everywhere. And that night, he showed us how we could sleep outside. 
tucked behind a warehouse that was abandoned in a row of Arba Vitae. And we stretched out a couple slats of cardboard. And I slept better that night than I had in months. And I felt like this tingling in my chest, like, oh, I, I, I almost can feel what I'm supposed to be here for. I, I don't know yet, but I, it's going the right way. Until the next morning, I dig into that peanut butter sandwich stash and all that's left are crumbs. Oh, and that's when I realized, okay, training wheels are off. Rubber's about to meet the road. Let's, let's, let's go. We've got to figure this out. And he asked if I'd ever fly a, flown a sign. Fly a sign? What? Yeah, fly a sign. You know, make some easy cash. And he goes on to tell me that flying a sign is finding some cardboard and writing something witty on it like, Help! Time traveler needs money for flux capacitor. And standing by an intersection and swallowing your pride. And I apparently had a lot of pride to swallow because I wanted nothing to do with this plan. But my... My belly said otherwise, so an hour later, I'm standing by the off-ramp of the 610 highway, and I'm holding a sign reading, Young, Dumb, and Hungry. And I hate every second of this, because I, I can't even look the people in the eyes, because I, I feel like if I look up, I'm going to see my dad, you know, just like looking back at me, shaking his head, and uh but here, I, I have a purpose. I'm not just standing here for myself. I'm standing here for, for Bear, who's 20 yards away with this new cast of characters that he's introduced us to. There's Todd and, and John May. John May is the older of us all, who's in a wheelchair with alabaster white hair dangling down his, his arms, and he, he, leans <laughs> he leans against the wheelchair with one hand just slowly pumps in the air. So I nod back, and I try to screw on a smile, and I, I make eye contact with the people in these cars. And it's not too long before, from a pearl white Mercedes, this hand reaches out and hands me a McDonald's breakfast wrap. And then another hand comes out with a $5 bill, and another with a hot cup of coffee. And 20 minutes later, I'm running back to the crew with a fistful of cash, feeling like David with a stone-cold Goliath behind me. And that McDonald's breakfast wrap, y'all, like, from the outside, it might have looked like four grown-ass men just huddled around a little tortilla filled with manufactured eggs. But from the inside of that moment, every bite was a revelation with hints of rosemary and maple. And we split up the money, which was about $10 each. And before Bear and I headed back to the French Quarter, John May pulled me aside and stuffed that $10 back in my hand. And I said, no, no, man, this is for all of us. And he said, no, you take this for, for when you really need it. Besides, I got all I need right here. And he tucked it into the side of my bag. And I tried to hold back the tears, and I took off. And that night... Bear and I walked south because I kept telling him, man, I want to see the ocean. And for those of you who know a little bit more about geography than I did, yep, New Orleans is not anywhere near the ocean. There are no sandy beaches with waves lapping at your toes. There's a bayou, which is a collection of still water that doubles as a fuck palace for mosquitoes. But just the same... Tex, probably knowing this, looked back and said, all right, Tex, you got it. Let's go find you some ocean. And what we found was the Mississippi River, and we dangled our feet over the edge, and 
We sang that Otis Redding song, you know? Sitting on the dock of the bay. You know how it goes. And neither one of us seemed too concerned with the fact that there was no bay, there was no tide rolling in, but we had each other to smack the mosquitoes off our back and watch the sunset. And that's about how it went for the next three weeks. Every day we'd wake up at the place that we'd found the night before and go about our day finding our way towards some food. And over time, I stopped feeling like a fraud. With every new person that I met, I st- the, the, the life back in Indiana just slowly faded away. And I filled all my pages with, with the details of this world, like the, the, the selflessness that I saw and the, and the brotherhood. And I, I just looked at everything through these rose-colored glasses, but still something was off. There was something unresolved in my chest, like, like there was answers in the air, but I'd forgotten the questions to connect them with, you know? And the safety, the lack of safety, like really just started to get to me. Because people we met kept disappearing, and we'd hear these stories of people stabbed in their sleep, or camps lit on fire, and people getting scooped up by the cops, and every night it just got harder and harder to sleep, like, like resting on the edge of a balloon that's constantly being inflated. And tonight, I can't sleep at all. In the South, there's a saying that everything is bigger here in the South, and that is certainly true for bugs. New Orleans is host to, to worms that look like snakes. There's flying cockroaches. There's these buck moth caterpillars that, that fall out of the trees and will sting your neck like a 4th of July sparkler. But the plague that outnumbers all of them are the mosquitoes. They are relentless. And tonight, they prey and they hunt and they find me. It starts with one. But before I can slap it, it calls out to the rest of the world, yo, we got fresh meat! And from the clouds and the little mosquito homes, they descend. One at a time. Just about every 30 seconds as I'm, ooh, just about to go to the And it goes like this, constantly, like water torture. And again, around 4 a.m., like the first night I'd got to New Orleans, I couldn't sleep and I just gave up I look over at Bear who's lying like a starfish on the concrete just snoring at the stars looking as comfortable as someone in the four seasons and I I consider waking him up to let him know I'm just going to go out for a walk but I decide not to wake him so I strap on my backpack and I wander and the word wander actually derives from planets When our ancestors first looked up at the stars and followed their path, they saw that there was always a few that didn't follow the rules. And tonight, for the first time since I'd met Bear, I'm I'm walking on my own and realizing that my feet have their own rhythm. And I'm starting to trust them. And they zig me and zag me like an etch-a-sketch through New Orleans and through Canal Street and down Bourbon is empty now, save just a few discarded Mardi Gras beads. And eventually they land me at an opening framed by these Roman columns with street lamps spilling through, making these, these massive fingers of shadow that cross over this courtyard. And off to my left, there's a gypsy cart with this lady reclining against it, a cat on her chest that she is just 
petting the fur off of, like there's no tomorrow, and laughing at the moon. And past her, to my right, there's this wrought iron gate. And there's a gentleman who is just barely hanging on to consciousness, who's woven his arms through the balusters, kind of suspending himself like this modern-day crucifixion. And I tiptoe past him as one might going through a zoo where all the cages have been opened. But this is not the main event, y'all. All of this is offset by this wild harmonica just screaming through the night. And he couldn't really quite call it music, but it was alive, unlike anything I'd ever heard. You know, it, it rocked back and forth from one emotion to the next, like, like, like a ship in, the, in, a, in a storm. You know, it, at once it was delicate and gentle and pretty, then violent and angry and ferocious, and then uplifting and optimistic and then despairing. And ah! it was like watching someone run along the edge of a cliff who at any moment might fall over or just burst into a pirouette. And I finally get past the, the last obstruction, and I see where this sound is coming from. This Moses-looking dude with a beard down to his knees, and he's standing underneath this lamp, eyes cast in shadow, yet somehow still piercing, just wailing through this harmonica, just like translating the entire mad kaleidoscope of life through these small wooden channels. And I'm, I'm, I'm just like a, like a tractor beam. I'm pulled in. And now I'm just four feet away from him, mouth ajar, when he finally looks up at me. But he keeps playing the harmonica, just screaming through it now. And I, I want to look away, but I can't. And it's like just being face to face with the barrel of a Civil War cannon that is slow motion exploding in your face. And I, I want to run, but I, I can't. And eventually he stops. And with the speed of a glacier, he lowers the harmonica to his side. And now we're just two strangers in the night staring at each other with no social contract to keep us there. But we just keep looking at each other until I, I eventually go to say something, but he beats me to it with a story of Jesse James. He tells me about what a slam dunk of a bastard he was and how the West was really one. And everything he says has this rhythm to it, this beat, like he's still playing the harmonica, but now with words. And eventually the story shifts and he talks about himself. He tells me that he plays the broomsticks. The broomsticks, you're asking? Yes, the broomsticks. Two brooms with the, with the handles cut off that he, he plays like thunder on the sidewalks. And only he could play the broomsticks like he could play the broomsticks. Yeah. And I am just nodding and smiling and dancing to the beat of this story until it shifts once more. And he starts telling me about me. And mind you, I haven't spoken a word at this point. And the whole time I've been in New Orleans, I haven't revealed anything about me. Even the people who know me don't really know me. But here is this man telling me that I'm from up north, that my dad is a pastor, that my favorite book is on the road, that I've read seven times. And I've never believed in any of this, but I can't deny it in this moment what's happening. And it rocks me. And I, I want to run. It's like being underneath of an 
avalanche that's that's falling because I don't know what else he's going to say and how it might shape me. And he doesn't stop there. He zooms backwards through my life. He tells me about my first love, my first heartbreak. He names her. And he tells me that I've been running from her ever since, running from that pain, too afraid to slow down and trust again, too afraid to trust myself. He tells me that I was standing at a fork in the road, and rather than choose a side, I just ran the other way. And now there's tears on my face because in a world in which I felt so unknown is this stranger who knows me better than I know myself. And I finally stopped running and I just stopped trying to remember every turn of phrase and just let his waters, his, his words wash over me like water. And for hours I listened to him tell me about where I've been and where I am and where I'm going until finally he gets quiet and the, the tunnel of energy between us thins enough that I notice my surroundings have changed. It's, it's now daylight, like the sun is fully out and people are walking around us. But before those strands of energy connecting us dissolve fully, he says, listen, the whole reason I was standing out here tonight was to give you this message. I was waiting for you. And the whole reason that you're here now all this way was to get this message. You were put here to write. Now you can go home and do that. Your mission here is done. And for the first time I spoke and I said, uh, okay. And I, I, I tried to think of a way to thank him. So I dug into my pockets and pulled out everything I had, which was $33. And I, I handed it to him and he said, no, take that money and go home. Go right now. And so I did. I walked with, with purpose for the first time to that Greyhound station on the edge of the city. And at the ticket counter, a lady told me that there was one more bus leaving that day. And it left in 20 minutes. And it cost $42. <sighs> and I, I, I put down the $33 on the, on the counter. And I started scrambling through my, my bag just looking for anything. And I remembered that $10 that John May had tucked in the side pocket almost to the dollar, the exact amount that I needed. And with about 18 minutes to spare, I, I debated whether or not I had time to go and find Bear. He was at least a mile away, and I, I figured if I was going to get there, I would seriously have to book it. But even then, I might not make it back in time. But I just couldn't stand the idea of not saying goodbye. So I sprinted. And along the way, I thought about everything I would say to him. I'd say, Thank you for taking me under your wing, for keeping me safe, for being the older brother I'd always wanted. And I would tell him, I'm not Tex. My name is Travis, and, and I'm from up north. And someday I, I think I'm going to be a writer. And when I got there, he wasn't there. All that was left was this little slat of cardboard with a bear-sized indentation and some storm clouds rapidly approaching. And I looked up at the clouds and tried to say goodbye. And I remembered something he said once when looking up at some clouds. He said, see that cloud? That there is the prettiest cloud. And that is prettier, if not as pretty, as any rich man's cloud. And I wrote that down back on the Greyhound, along with everything else that I could remember. 
And for the next two days of that long trip, I, uh, cities and states just blurred by. I didn't see any of it because I was just furiously writing. And for the first time, it was all just flowing out of me w- with effortlessness and, and, and virility. And I think maybe I had, for the first time, a story to tell and a reason to tell it. And my hand cramped and my eyes were almost bleeding from being so tired. But I, 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 I worried if I stopped and I slept and I would, I'd lose some part of the story and I didn't want to miss a beat. And when I ran out of paper, I went back and I wrote in the margins and I, and I wrote in between the lines until I finally placed my last period around the time that I got back to Muncie, Indiana. And I closed the book and the next day I walked to the computer lab to start typing it up. And the first thing that popped up on the screen was a news bulletin about New Orleans. There's pictures of a city under a blanket of water ripped apart by a Hurricane Katrina. And <laughs> I, I, I would have absolutely been there. I, I, I would have been there six hours after I left is when this hit and six hours after meeting this person who told me to go and in my place was Theo the pigeon whisperer and and Bear and John May and, and Bear would probably be smiling with something sage to say even then and I tried to imagine him this way standing safely on some high ground but the fact is I I didn't know what happened to any of them and to this day, I still don't. And that was 17 years ago. And I, I walked home from the computer lab that day and saw people that I hadn't seen in a while. And they said, yo, Travis, what's up? And I couldn't respond to any of them. I just walked home in a daze. And I took those bulging notebooks and put them in the bottom drawer of my bedroom desk. And I didn't open that drawer again for a year. But I thought about them often because I, I kept thinking, no matter what happens, whatever path I choose, like there in that bottom drawer is evidence of something real and something honest and something with purpose. <laughs> and finally, a year later, I put everything I could fit into my car and was on my way to move to Los Angeles. And the last thing I packed... Last thing I packed, I went to go get those notebooks. And when I opened the drawer, they were gone. Just as mysteriously as that story had landed on the page, it had flown away. And I, to this day, have not made sense of that. Other than maybe that story just wasn't ready to be told. And over the years between now and then, and I... I probably spent a hundred times trying to sit down to write that story, but the words just didn't fit on the page. And I worried that if I went through that journey again, it would just still fly away somehow. So I just never tried to tell it until about a month ago, Christian, who's an organizer here at Treefort, asked me to fill 90 minutes of time. And I thought, okay, well, I guess I better try to write this story down. And a lot of details have faded, but a few things still remain in high definition. I can still see John May tapping his heart. 
I can see Bear with his arms outstretched saying everywhere. And I can see that man with the harmonica. And the last thing he said before I left, he said, you were put here to write. And someday you're going to write a story that's going to rip a man's heart in half and put it back together. And I didn't know what to do with that. That seemed lofty. Until recently, trying to write this story, I think I realized that the man's heart he was speaking of was mine. And I think that's why I'm standing in front of you all right now, is to try to put it back together. Thank you. Welcome back. How about that, Travis Abels? Travis tells us he wants to come back in 2023. Oh, yeah. We want Travis back. Yeah, exactly. I am not bringing my wife anymore if Travis is there because he makes me look like such a slob. <laughs> he is a very natty. He is natty. a natty gentleman. We all look natty. like Adam Sandler next one standing next to him. <laughs> we want to say thanks to Travis. We also want to thank Brett Battistain. He and his podcast network host us on eavesdrop, E-A-S-D-Drop.com, the podcast network we love. He helps get our stuff out to Spotify and Stitcher and Apple Podcasts. If you're needing to interact with us, it's easy to do. Go to Facebook, to the Facebook group, Story Forward, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram, story.forward. That's it for us this week. I ask that you do one thing, that you keep the story moving forward. Progress the narrative.